If you would, please take your Bibles and turn uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Now Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed us before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. Behold, behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. 
And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The Word of God for the people of God. The story's told, and it's attributed to a couple of different authors. Let me just go with the one I'm most familiar with. The story's told of the famous author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who decided to play a trick on some of the most famous and well-to-do of his day, his society. He played a very harsh game with them. This is what he did. He decided to send a simple message to each of them, about a dozen or so. And he sent out this message, and it would arrive on the same day to each one of them. And the message simply said, All is discovered. Flee. Nothing else. All is discovered. Flee. Well, within the end of the day, it is said, all dozen or so were stealthily getting their way out of the country. Why? Because of their guilt. Everyone has guilt, right? We, we're all, we all have a sense of guilt. There, there are certain things about us we don't want revealed. And, and if those are about to be revealed, we're looking for Southwest Airways, right? You uh, want to get away? And yes, get away fast. All is discovered. Flee. Guilt produces fear. Fear of being discovered. Fear of being publicly exposed. And off they fled. And fear bookends this chapter. You notice that, don't you? You see that, don't you? You see, you see first of all, Samuel. He's afraid of Saul for good reason, right? Uh, Samuel is guilty of, of, of treason if he does what the Lord calls him to do. And he'll do it. He'll do it because in the end, Samuel, by God's grace, is what? More afraid of God than of man. There's the, the fear of, of Samuel of first Saul, but then more so his reverential fear of Yahweh. But it goes from uh, Samuel's fear to the fear of the inhabitants of Bethlehem, right? Because here comes Samuel. And when they see Samuel coming, they're sort of like those, uh, those society folks in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's day. Uh-oh, what are we guilty of? Why is the man of God coming? Is he coming to bring judgment? It's their time to fear. And they're afraid of the man of God. Should they flee? Should they go to Ramah? Should they go to Gibeah? Should they flee from Bethlehem? Or, or maybe their fear is not so much because of their guilt, and now the man of God is coming into their presence, maybe bringing judgment. Maybe their fear is along these lines. Oh no, here comes Samuel, and what if Saul finds out? If Saul finds out Samuel's here, he may come pouring his wrath down on us and wipe us out. No matter the reason, fear sets the tension of this famous story. 
And at the end, we see fear again, don't we? It bookends this chapter. In the end, we see now Saul fearful. Actually, the word is used, it says tormented. I think it's probably better translated terrorized. Saul is terrorized by this spirit. We don't know exactly what it is. But we do know it's plaguing him. It's terrorizing him. He is fearful of it. And in the midst of this fear, beginning and the end of the chapter, God was and is saying some very crucial things for those who find themselves oftentimes in fear. Three things I want you to consider. Three crucial things that God is saying to you, to me, in this text. First, He's he's speaking of our peace being God's provision. Our peace is God's provision, His provision. Secondly, He's teaching us, He's telling us that the heart is His concern. The heart is God's concern. And lastly, He is telling us that real danger in our preserving presence is His Spirit calling for us. Our peace is His provision. The heart is His concern. Real danger and our preserving presence is His Spirit calling. Walk with me through each of these first. Our peace is His provision. There's a key word here in this text. I don't know if you you see it so well with the English translation, but we see it first in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided. Literally, I've seen But it's seeing, carrying the meaning of, I have seen to. Like when we say, I have seen to it that we have all the supplies necessary for our journey, for our trip, for our vacation. It's seen with the idea, yes, of provision. And we see the root of this word nine times in this chapter. So God is telling us this is super important. And what is He providing? God will provide His choice of a king. God is providing His choice of a king. And it will be God's chosen and provided king who will keep the rejected king from falling all apart. It would be God's chosen and provided king who would defeat enemies both outside of Israel and within Israel. It would be God's provided chosen king who would bring Jerusalem into possession. It would be God's provided chosen king who would be the reason that Israel would in the future experience shalom, peace. And it would be through David that God would provide victory and peace, ultimately through the chosen king who brings ultimate shalom, ultimate eternal peace through his defeat of Satan on the cross and his defeat of death through the empty tomb. God provides. God provides this. 
God provides his king. God provides his king who brings peace. God does this. God brings this. God does this. God brings this. I don't, and you don't. This is the provision of the Almighty who loves his people. Let me apply this truth to the graduates and all those of you who've already graduated or you're going to graduate in the future, you can make similar application. Graduates, hear me out. Your achievements are great. They really, really are. You've worked hard. You've been diligent. You've poured a lot of effort and a lot of late nights into your studies. And your achievements have been, I would say, remarkable. Congratulations. But let me tell you, never put your trust in your achievements. Never put your trust in your hard work, in your diligence. Know this, all those things are good. Yes, they are good, but you will never find true peace in your efforts. You'll never find true peace in your hard work. You'll never find true peace in you landing this or you doing this. And if you try to, let me tell you what happens. Those things become a harmful spirit unto you, and they will terrorize you. Because you'll never be able to do enough. Put your trust and rest in the one who alone provides shalom. And that's God. That's God. God provides his peace through his king. And ultimately his king is your Savior and Lord. Rest in Christ. Don't rest in what you do. That's the first crucial thing God is saying to us in this text. The second thing, and this may be the more obvious, is the heart is God's concern. And there's a key verse. We've had a key word now, a key verse. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. Sounds, his height and his stature sounds a lot like Saul. And notice, even the spiritual Samuel is tempted to look on the external appearances. Even after years of, of being used by God, he's still tempted to look on externals. Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Here's that word again. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now we think we understand that, don't we? We think we get that, don't we? You don't judge a book by its cover, right? God's ways are not our ways. God's left-handed counterintuitive power is always surprising, right? We're not surprised by that. Or are we? God's choosing what, what is foolish in the sight of the world, what's weak in the sight of the world to work out His glorious purpose. We know all that stuff, right? We think we do. But I've got my doubts. I want you to think about the judgments you make each and every day. Choices that you make each and every day. If you're honest with yourself, how often... Do you base your choices 
upon externals. Think about even the judgments that we make in church. We look at the externals. Do we like it? Impressive? Powerful? Beautiful? I remember back in my seminary days, long, long time ago, and I remember talk when we were in seminary of church planning or big steeple churches. And by the way, the steeple looks great. Thank you, deacons. And it, it, it never would fail that in those sorts of discussions, within this community that's supposed to be a godly community, inevitably there would be some who would make much ado about outward appearances, about certain skill sets, about the, this was back in the day of power ties, whether or not you wore a power tie. And some would be overlooked. Let's be careful here. Let's be careful not to overlook what God may choose. Let's also be careful here and, and, and not uh, think that God opposes fine appearance. Right? I mean, verse 12 should knock that out of the way. Look at verse 12 again. And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. I don't know what that exactly means, or whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it seems like it must be a decent thing here. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. That's a good thing. And was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. It's just as one commentator has put it, external appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It simply doesn't matter. For Israel's good, God looks on the heart. That matters. And what does that mean? What does it mean to look on the heart? What does it mean that David had a heart that, that God liked? Did it mean that David's heart was perfect? You know the rest of the story, don't you? And you know, no, his heart was not perfect. It, that can't be it. What does it mean? Well, I think, brothers and sisters, it means that David's heart, by God's grace, was submissive to God. Willing to hear God's Word. Submissive to God. Isn't it comforting that what man so oftentimes rejects, God so oftentimes chooses? I want you to hear some familiar words, but hear them afresh. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he himself bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, 
and by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. What the world rejects, God has chosen. And He has chosen it, and He's chosen Him for your salvation. And this is what God says of you and of me. Hear these familiar words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according toward worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, and even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's concern is the heart. Graduates, let me apply this to you. While God looks at the heart, employers don't. Can't really. So look sharp on those interviews. But know, always know, no matter whether you get the job or don't, always know that what matters is your heart. Is it submissive to Almighty God? If it is, that's what's beautiful. Lastly, quickly, and the reason that this is a good Pentecost text, and I didn't plan it, God did. Lastly, real danger in our preserving presence is His Spirit calling. I want you to see three verses. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah, or Ramah. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord, in opposition, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented or terrorized him. Verse 23, And whenever the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. God chose David. And those God chooses, He equips. God chose David, and He equipped him by pouring out His Spirit upon him. Like that future day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes pouring out, rushing upon David to empower him to do what? To be king, certainly, of course, obviously. But if you know the rest of the story, also to equip him to face danger, to endure suffering, to have to endure and navigate the envy and the hatred and the anger and the plots of this Saul who becomes more and more messed up in his mind. 
The Spirit pours out on and rushes on David to empower him to hide in caves, to live in exile, to even live in exile among Philistines. The Spirit rushes out and is poured upon David to equip him to also even endure the mutiny of his own sons. The rushing of the Spirit was what we might call a severe mercy. A severe mercy. He wouldn't be able to endure the things that were to come apart from the empowering of the Spirit. But the empowering of the Spirit would induce, would provoke danger and suffering. That shouldn't surprise us. Think of the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove, and then immediately after that, what does the Spirit do? Throws Jesus into the wilderness. To do what? To face temptation. To face suffering. To face pain. Think about what happens after the day of Pentecost. The Spirit rushes upon His people, it equips them, empowers them, and it empowers and equips them to do what? Suffer persecution and go forth among the nations. Why might we expect anything different? Oh Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Oh, I want to be a Spirit-filled Christian. Fantastic. You know what that means? You're going to face danger. You're going to face hardship. You're going to have problems. You're going to have struggles. You're going to be misunderstood as this church was misunderstood. That's the danger. But how about the preserving? What would the Spirit-filled, anointed, indwelt David be able to do for the one who would be soon going after his head? In mad frenzies. Verse 23. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took his lyre, played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well when the harmful spirit departed from him. Let me end with a somewhat lengthy quote. You got, you know, if, you're, if you're about to fall asleep, pinch yourself, whatever you need to do, listen. As Saul will hate David, and as he is rejected by God, yet sustained by David's service, so the world hates Christ's people. Yet, in its doomed state, is only benefited by them. They are the ones who are the salt of the earth. That is, who keep society and culture from rotting into complete decay. Who keep the world from being worse than it is. They are divinely granted restraint upon the earth's putrefaction. They keep the world from drowning in its own vomit. Which, strangely enough, the world craves. Are we children? Are you children of Pentecost? This is the day of Pentecost. Then know this. 
we will face opposition, we will face rejection, we will face hatred. But dear ones, that's okay. Because in doing so, we shall share in the sufferings of Christ. But recognize this. The world that hates us, the world that hates each and every one of you, needs you. The world that hates you needs you. It needs your deeds of mercy. It needs your deeds of mercy even when those deeds of mercy are denied. When people from high places act as if you never are engaged in them. They need your deeds of mercy. They need your deeds of mercy and love even while they are charging you with hatred and bigotry. You are the salt. You're keeping, you're keeping them from drowning in their own vomit. You, by divine design, give the world Give your neighbor, give your community time to repent. So here's my bottom line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Buck up. Hold the line. That's why you are filled with the Spirit. By the Spirit, you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you challenge us so strongly from an ancient, ancient story like this. Help us rest in your provision of the perfect King, the King of Peace, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us not to look upon external appearances as the world does, but to be concerned about the heart and, and strengthen us and prepare us as Spirit-filled Christians for the dangers that we will face and enable us somehow, some way, for the glory of Christ to be sought in this world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.